I want to start out by saying that 2017 is a very special year for my wife, Laura, and I. We were married 10 years ago, and so it'll be in September that we celebrate 10-year anniversary. And so we're in the midst of planning a a 10-year trip, sort of trying to go and celebrate that. And not too long ago, we were... We were in uh, Cabo San Lucas for a little trip. When you have kids, it's a big deal. Um, with just your spouse and just spend time together, it's almost impossible. And they're like heaven moments, like the inbreaking of the new heavens and the new earth to be able to spend some time with your spouse alone without your kids. But I love my children here, I'm not saying. Here's the thing. I was looking through some pictures of our last trip together, and it brought back just the excitement of being able to return to this place that, we're, that, that we hope to go uh, in the next several months. And one of the things that, that I think is obvious is, that I'm going to tell you is that, you know, looking at the pictures just doesn't do the damn thing justice, does it? You know, if you've ever been on a major trip, if you've ever been somewhere, and you're looking at the picture, you realize the picture is not the reality, right? I mean, give me the beach, sand on my toes, over a Polaroid of the sand, ten times out of ten, right? It's because we know the reality there to be greater than the picture. In fact, the picture itself... It's just a pointer, as it were. It points forward. It points like a sign, as it were, to something that's greater. A picture of Cabo reminds us that Cabo really exists. But the picture isn't Cabo. The picture isn't the reality. Now, I hope you're trying to see, trying to connect the dots maybe a little bit with where I'm going. And this is what I want to say. I want to say this. In the same way, in the same way every week, we have said that Judges gives us a picture pointing us forward, there it is, to a greater deliverer, a greater judge, one who isn't riddled with failure and disappointment. And y'all, the same holds true this week. As we look at Samson, this this very, very dark, mysterious uh, judge, this final deliverer that God has raised up, we are going to see something like two, two kind of major themes elucidated in this text. And I, I want to say to them that to be very, 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 very clear about this, that first of all, we're going to see the picture of a judge's brokenness. And then secondly, we're going to see um, the pointer to a broken judge. So the picture of a judge's brokenness. And then secondly, a pointer to the greater to a broken judge. Now, before we go there, I just want to say this. I think all of us, all of us, if we will begin to sort of let this text, not only as we read it, have it read us. To have it examine who we are. For it, as it were, to cut us open and take a look at who we really are through this text. And if you will begin tonight to let that text do that, let this text do that, I think that you're going to see God's grace put on display in some amazing, fantastic ways. So much so you'll walk out of these doors with a fresh sense of how crazy God in Christ is about you. You see, do you believe, do you believe that God really loves sinners? And that God really is moved by your misery, by your sin, by your rebellion against Him? All of those things that we think that keep Him away from us are actually the grounds that make Him move to us. That's what we're going to see tonight. That's my hope that you'll walk out of here with tonight. So let's take a look, first of all, at the idea of the picture 
of a judge's brokenness. A picture of a judge's brokenness. That really is what this text is going to show us and teach us. But before we take a look at that and take a look at this text, you really need to understand kind of what is going on um, in and around uh, the, the sort of world of the text. So let me, let's, let's take a look at it. Take a look at verses thir- uh, 13, verses, the first verse there. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you've been coming with us all semester, you've heard that refrain almost every week. That God's people have turned away from Him, right? And that because of that, they are given over by God into the hands of some neighboring army's force or some neighboring community, and they're overruled or governed by them. And usually with oppression, usually with hurt and harm, and it's a horrible, horrible set of conditions. That's where we're at. Now, we've heard stories about other peoples like the Ammonites, right, from a previous judge, but now we're into another group of people called the Philistines. This is a very, very important sort of area um, area of the text that we need to kind of know about. But first of all, let's take a look as well at who Samson was. Did you see it there in verse 2 of 13? That he was born as the son of a barren woman. An angel comes to her, right? An angel of the Lord in verse 3 comes to her and tells her, Behold, you are barren. You've not born any children, but you're about to. And then interestingly, you might see in verse 5 of chapter 13, if you have your Bible out, let me just read it for you. It says, No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, I'm going to start with the end and then we'll move back. Begin to save save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That was a long, long, long process, only begun by... Uh, the judge, Samson. But if you remember, later on in the first book of Samuel, first book of Samuel, Samuel chapter, first Samuel 17, you remember that famous story where the young shepherd boy, David, goes out into this valley and fights this Philistine named Goliath, right? And that's the process by which God will eventually come about subduing these Philistines. So just to kind of show you that Samson begins it, but it's just the process. But what about this deal about a razor touching his head? Well, in Numbers chapter 6, one could give themselves over to the Lord in a special, unique way. They could take a vow, make a promise that we've talked about before. A Nazarite vow that just meant that three things would happen. The individual would not drink fruit off the vine, either fermented, alcoholic, or non-alcoholic, right? Secondly, they would make a promise to not touch any dead or unclean thing. And then thirdly, what might be the weirdest of all culturally for us is that they would not shave their head or cut their hair, okay? And what we're going to see is that Samson, that vow is placed upon him to be set apart unto the Lord because God has been faithful to his family. A little bit about who Samson was, his origins. But let's take a look because things begin to turn immediately downhill. Let's take a look at his failures. Look what he says in verses 14, chapter 2. He says this, Give me a wife. He looks at his dad. It's very demanding. And what's interesting is he goes after a woman who is not in covenant with Yahweh. That this is a this is a the, the language of an uncircumcised uh, woman is not the, the the point there is that is that not that interracial uh, marriage is bad. That's not the point. The point that is an interfaith marriage. That God has said to His people, "You shall not marry." and go into covenant with people who are outside of Israel. And Samson, God's chosen deliverer, the one who was supposed to be 
stand out as an example for his people. The one that was supposed to be holy unto God is basically abandoning everything that is laid upon him. He is a manipulator, right? He also is a... Whoops, my pages have gotten out of whack there. He also is very destructive. He's a womanizer. He's obsessed with sex, right? The idea here is over and over again we see that God's chosen leader is absolutely ruinous. And this is something you need to understand. Every time we've looked at a judge, the spiral goes like this, the circle goes like this, and it's gone down and down and down. And do you know where we are now? We're at the bottom. We're at the very bottom of God's, of God's leaders. There is absolutely, I cannot, I have looked in Samson in his life in this text for days, and there is nothing <coughs> commendable about this guy. And yet, God uses him. And yet, he is God's chosen deliverer. And here's what's really interesting. Why? Why is, why is he raised up as a judge? And I think this is where the key thing is and why this is a great picture, a great picture, remember, of a, judge's bro- of a broken judge. If you notice there in verse, if you take a look in chapter 14, in verse 7 and in verse 3, he says, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And the same thing in verse 7, right in Samson's eyes. This is a key phrase. Later on in chapter 17 and in chapter 21, text to which we will come back as the semester ends, that phrase, what, there's a phrase that says this, that there was no king in Israel on that day, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Being right in, in your own eyes is basically to say that my internal sense of things, what I want, what I long for, is the way that things should be. And basically what's happening is there the people have abandoned faith with Yahweh. And what has happened is this. Is everybody is just basically saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And Samson is a perfect representative of the people. Now, why is that so important? Y'all, I think it's important because of this. Because I think that if we're honest, if we'll take a look at who Samson is and what he is like, we're going to see ourselves. And we're going to see ourselves as people who basically say to God, I want to do what's right in my own eyes. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live my life. And that's what Samson has done. I'm going to come back to that, but I want to finish kind of telling the story. It gets weird, doesn't it? A lion coming at him. He rips the thing apart like a young goat. You know, like you rip apart young goats, right? You know what I mean? That, that whole thing, of course. Oh, of course. Now I understand completely. Um, but also, he gives honey to his parents. What's that about? Also, what's this deal about a party and weddings? Well, weddings would have happened with a... They would have been preceded by about a seven-day party. And it would have been, you know, crazy. This is really interesting is the word there, feast, actually just means like a drunken... I don't know, keg party for about seven days. The people were just getting lit. That's what it was all about. They were celebrating, okay? And the point is, is that this is very important for the promises laid on him, right? Because what were the two, two or two out of three things that, that he was supposed to live by? What? He wasn't supposed to touch something dead. And he wasn't supposed to drink alcohol. And here it is. And we just begin to see this unraveling. If you know the later story about Samson, what's going to happen? All his hair is going to be cut off, right? Clearly breaking who this story was supposed to be. Interesting character. Lastly, what's this whole deal about the riddle? Well, we'll look at it really quickly. He basically is posing them a riddle. He's playing with them. He is toying with them. 
He wants them to not get this riddle right, and there's absolutely no way they possibly can, right? They weren't there. They don't know what's going on. And the whole deal is, is he's trying to do this to extort, extort stuff from them. Basically, he wants 30 new changes of clothes. I know that's weird, but that's what the text is telling us. What happens? Well, they press his new wife, the wife-to-be, and they're like, if you don't tell us what the answer to this riddle is, then we're going to kill you and your father. And she's like, I don't know. They're like, well, you better figure it out. So she comes and gives him the sad sob story. Oh, you don't love me. You know what I mean? Like, you won't even tell me what the riddle is. He's like, I haven't told my parents yet. Well, she presses him further, and eventually she tells him. He tells her what the answer to that riddle is. And then did you notice? He says this. The people that get the riddle right. If you hadn't plowed with my heifer. Now, he's not talking about a female cow that he's got somewhere. Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about his fiance. He's like, if you hadn't plowed with her, you wouldn't know the answer. So there you see the way that he treats his bride-to-be. And then, as if that weren't bad enough, he goes back home and basically leaves her at the altar, and she's given over to his best man. That's what happens. Now we're going to see that Samson comes back next week and we'll have to come back for part two of Samson to see how that gets resolved. But the picture, y'all, is just awful. What does this have to do with anything about why this would be important for us? Well, for two things I think are important. One, where do we see our own selves as living right in our own eyes? Right? You see, all of us love, it is the spirit of our age, autonomy, a rule unto ourselves. Don't tell me how I ought to live. And I just want to say that faithful Christian witness, y'all, will always, 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 it will always run counterculture to the world that you live in. In fact, did you know the early Christians, what stood them out, what stood out so, so much was that they were liberal with their money and they were conservative with their bodies. This is something that Tim Keller points out in his commentary. That the early Christians, what made them so unique was they were liberal with their money. They were generous people. And they were conservative with their bodies. And that ran right into the face of the culture of the day. That was the opposite. They were conservative with their money, stingy, greedy, and liberal with their bodies. And I just want to say this, that that culture back then, all the way up in the first century, and even now, is a way that we can live faithfully in this world. A way to live not what is right in our own eyes, but what is right in the eyes of the Lord. The picture here is very clear, y'all. How and where are you living in a way that is right in your own eyes as opposed to how you would be living in a way that is right in the Lord's eyes? And the way that we know what is right in the Lord's eyes is how He has revealed Himself here in the Scriptures. Does that make sense? That's the answer. That's how we know. I just think it's interesting. I'm going to talk about this just ever so briefly because it's the context here. We've got a relationship sort of marriage and sexuality going on. Think about this picture. I remember several years ago, there was a young woman who was um, wanting to uh, join kind of RDS leadership team. She's long gone now. You would not know her. She's, there's no way that any of you would. But it was interesting as I was talking to her about her desire to come be a part of uh, RUS kind of leadership culture. She just said, she's, she said, I don't think I can do this. And I said, why? And she said, because... I do not, as a Christian, I do not think it's wrong that I'm sleeping with my boyfriend. It's like, all right, well, I appreciate you being honest there, but I have a question for you. Do you think that's what the Scripture says and teaches how you ought to live? And she said, let me be very clear here, she said, I do 
I, I know what the Bible says on that, and I think it's wrong. And I appreciate her honesty. That was intellectual honesty right there. She's saying, I look at the Bible, and I think that it's wrong. And I just want to say this. That, in that instance, is doing what is right in her own eyes. You see that? Doing what is right in her own eyes. In every turn, whenever you do what is right in your own eyes, you're looking at the Scriptures and saying, God is wrong. The Scriptures are wrong, and I am right. Utterly telling, utterly searching, because I think if every single one of us for a moment were just to stop, we would see vast areas of our lives. It don't be just with sex. How are you with your money? Are you a generous person? How are you towards people that are different than you in the sense that maybe they're not as socially adept as you are? Maybe they're an outsider. How do you treat them? Who are the friends in your friend group? Does everyone look the same? Are you, are, you, are you building a small little kingdom of only yourselves? Or if you're a Christian, you know that Jesus says we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. We ought to have a community around us. It looks very, very much like the kingdom. Anyways, we could list, the list could go on and on. It's a very searching question. Where are you presently living in a way that is right in your own eyes? And if you begin to ask that question, you're going to see phenomenal grace come to you if you'll listen to me for the next 15 minutes, I promise. But right there is the picture of a broken, of a judge's brokenness. Samson is a broken man. He is deeply flawed, morally, relationally, emotionally. He's a reflection of the people as a whole during this time. And if we're able to be honest, we'll see ourselves in him. The great uh, commentator, writer, Barry Webb, says this, though, and this is where we kind of begin to make a transition, that we must not allow our focus on the Savior God raises up to eclipse the God who saves. That we must not allow our focus on the Savior God raises up, that is Samson, to eclipse the God who saves. And that brings us to the second point, the pointer to a broken judge. Now, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that Samson's story points us in a negative way. In a negative way. Y'all, anybody know the old, nobody uses this anymore, but like 35 millimeter film? Has y'all ever, do y'all even know what I'm talking about? Okay, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't lost that yet. Okay, great. There's like cultural references I'm outdating on y'all, so it's just, I'm feeling my age, y'all. If you were to expose that film, well, not expose it, but if it take pictures on it, you would see a negative image, right? Light hitting it, creating a negative image on that film. And Samson's going to act as a negative image for us, for what is real, true, and beautiful. And we're going to see that right now. We can see the actions of Samson, his parents, and the Philistines, and forget that there is another character in the story. Look with me at verses 14, verse, chapter 14, verse 4. Here it is. His father and mother did not know what, that it was from the Lord. What was it from the Lord? Samson's desire for this wife. They did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, that is the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. What's this text telling us in chapter 4, verse 4? It's saying this, that God was at work behind all the seeming brokenness in Samson's life, behind all of the despair and ruin in Israel in that day, for one thing, to be faithful to his promises. To rescue his people. That's what you have to see. You have to know that behind Samson's life, in all of his brokenness, that behind the people's life, in all of their turning away from God, 
that God Himself, the sovereign God of the universe, was at work conspiring, even against Samson, in a way to draw in His people and to rescue them. Rescue them and to deliver them from the oppressive Philistines. That God was at work. And y'all, when you begin to see that, you begin to see something very, very amazing about this text. Let me just point out one thing in particular. Everywhere else, when you read this, in chapter 13, verse 1, and the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you know that in the rest, the rest of the book of, of Judges, the earlier 13 chapters, whenever that has it, the people begin to oppress the Israelites. And they do something. Do you know what it is? They cry out. They say, ah! We're oppressed. Help us, O Lord. Help us. And did you see how they did that in this text? Did you catch it? No, you didn't. Why? Because it's not in there. Do you know why? Because they don't care anymore. They have so become, like the nations around them, they've utterly abandoned the worship and relationship of God. They're oppressed, and they don't even care. And do you know what happens, though? God still delivers them. Well, think about that. Think about what this is saying. The people need deliverance and don't know it. And because they don't know it, they don't want it. Do you see that? But God in His amazing grace to them goes against what they don't know and don't want and rescues them anyways. Do you see God's grace right there? Do you see His kindness on display? That He would move into people who essentially don't want Him and He would want them? Dear friends, here's what I hope you'll see tonight. I don't know where you come from spiritually. I don't know how many of you are Christians or not. Here's one thing I want you to see. There is no way that any of you ever want God without Him first wanting you. The only people that God ever saves are people who don't want Him. And that ought to make you weep. The only way that your heart is ever turned to wanting and to desiring God is because of what? He has already moved. He has already moved first to take your dead, hard, cold, rebellious heart that does not want Him and He moves by His Spirit to open up your eyes, to soften your heart that you might want Him. Y'all, that's staggering. Why? Because what if we were left to our own devices? What if we were left to finally say, oh, I can just change my old dead heart? I mean, look, dead people do not do anything. Right? That's why Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 can say this, that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. Hallelujah, amen. That is amazing news. Y'all, and here's what I want you to see tonight. I want you to see, therefore... That what moves the heart of God is your very inability to want Him. Let me say that again. What moves the heart of God into action is your not wanting Him. Do you, are you staggered by that? Can you believe that that's what's true about Christianity? That God would love you that much. That in all of the ways that you would seek to turn away from Him, and rebel against him, and he goes, I'm still coming after you. 
because I love you too much. Because I made a promise to you that I would be your God and you would be my people. And so I will stop at nothing to come get you. And I think that's wonderful for two reasons. I'm going I'm to say one and I'm going to close with a second. The first thing I want to say is this. If God loved you and went after you when you were at your worst, when you did not want him, please explain to me how when you fail after he already knows and loves you, please explain to me why he would turn his back on you. He already loved you at your worst. What can you possibly do that would turn his heart away from you? You see, I think many people think this. Many people think God gets me into relationship with him. And then it's my job to sort of stay in good graces by these good works. I read my Bible enough. I go on enough mission trips. If I don't cuss, if I don't have sex or whatever else, then God will finally look at my moral record. And if the good slightly outweighs the bad, then I can stay in good graces with him. And I just want to show you that's not Christianity. I don't know what it is, but that's not Christianity. Jesus, by his grace, keeps you and holds you and loves you even when you are at your worst. That's pointing to a judge. We're going to see how he's broken in just a moment. But how can you know that he would do that? How can you know that Jesus would love you like that? Because, you see, there was another judge who was coming whose mother was told by an angel that she would bear a child and that this child, his name would be not Samson, but Emmanuel, God with us. And that he would be the God that would come And that He would be the God that would live a perfect life for you such that your righteousness, that your right standing before God would be so secure that it could never spot, that it could never fade. You see, many of you think that Christianity is about God forgiving you. And you know what? That's really true. That's that's true. But what happens, right, when you've been forgiven? Right, right? I mean, I've used this illustration before. Let's say you have a $10,000 debt and you go to the bank and you're like, I need the debt to be forgiven. And they say, great, your debt is forgiven. How much money do you have? None. None. Dear friends, the gospel says the debt is not only forgiven, but an infinite righteous standing is given before God forever that cannot spot and that cannot fade. That is the gospel. You are not only forgiven, You are declared righteous in God's sight once and forever. And because of that, God now looks at Jesus and sees you. And all of the benefits and all of the blessings that come because of what Jesus has done for you are applied to your account. That is staggering. That's what Jesus does for us. A friend of mine, I need to close here. A friend of mine, Brian Haybiggs, a former campus minister, He used to be a campus minister at Mississippi State, and he tells the story, I have to read it here, about a a student who who was a a senior, she was a senior, she was very involved in her her RUF campus ministry. She was sort of the golden child, right? She was the girl that was leading all the Bible studies and going on all the missions trips, and she was was, uh, in a relationship with this guy. I'm just going to kind of read some of his words. Um, People would see him, and they would say, They would say, um, gosh, he's such a great guy. And then she would say, I don't think this guy loves me. I think he's just actually using me. I don't think he cares about me. And she broke up with him. And so it's her senior year. And little did she know that um, after she broke up with him, she found out she was pregnant. Senior year of college. Her world comes coming down. Just crashes. Right? 
What she didn't know is that from her freshman year, a fellow senior now, uh, for four years, a young man who'd been involved in RUF had kept his eye on her the whole time. And he finally called her up and said, I, he gave her the, this, as the campus minister says, he gave her the sort of like standard two week, I'm not going to call her sort of deal because she just had a breakup, you know what I mean? And uh, he calls her and he says, I'd like to take you out on a date. And she's like, oh my gosh, yes, yeah, great, because she knows this guy's a great guy. She hangs up with him and she goes, uh-oh, he has no idea that I'm pregnant. What am I going to do? So she calls him back. And as she calls him back, she says to him, and she says, John, um, she says, John, I'm so honored that you asked me out, but I realize that you don't know this. I'm actually pregnant. And then there was a long pause on the phone, and he said, and these are amazing words, well, I love pregnant women. <laughs> and they went out, and they ended up getting married. And he ended up being that child's daddy. Oh, why share that story with you? Because it is the gospel. It is a picture of the gospel that somebody would see the worst in someone. And it wouldn't turn them away, but that it would draw them in. Friends, what do you think Jesus thinks of you? What do you think he looks at you and sees? And when he does see all of your mess, all the stuff that you wear the face, the mask to hide, what do you think he does? The gospel tells us very, very clearly that God moves to us in our brokenness. In Matthew chapter 9, he says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. That broken judge does that for you. Samson shows us it. The gospel is true, dear friends. Do you believe it? Well, I urge you, believe it and live. Let's pray.